Right. If you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 7. It's been a while, but we're getting back into our study through the Gospel of Mark. It's been almost two months now between Christmas and, and last month's study through the uh, doctrine of sanctification or holiness. And so I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. Mark 7, verses 24 to 30. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word this morning. Mark writes, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the, little, let the children rather be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The sense of reading of God's word, you may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to bless his word to us uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the, uh, the way that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It separates bone from marrow and soul from spirit. And by it, we, uh, we come to know you by your grace, by the work of your spirit. And we ask even now that you would uh, sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. Help us, give us understanding by your spirit. Open our eyes, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, to kind of uh, play catch up a little bit, I had to do it myself. Uh, it was kind of hard to go from all these other topic, all these other other passages, and try to f- jump right back into the swing of things with uh, with Mark's gospel. So, to kind of catch uh, everyone up a little bit, if you haven't been here for that study, or if it's just been long enough that you've lost sight of of where we are, we're just about halfway through Mark's gospel already. Um, and as Mark's style, if you're familiar with the book of Mark. How he uses the word immediately, I think it's around 40 times in these 16 chapters. He, he's, he's, a, he's a writer of action. He's moving the story along very rapidly, and that's also the case uh, here. By way of review, the previous chapter, chapter 6, we saw Jesus perform the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6, verses 30 to 44. Um, and if right after that, he, there's the word immediately again in, in Mark 6, 45, um, the very next uh, miracle is Jesus walking on water. Him walking on water. Uh, Mark 6:53 to 56 gives us kind of a summary of uh, what was going on there. It says, uh, when they had crossed over, uh, they came to land at, at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately, there's that word again, immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So there's a theme here so far in the book of Mark. You have Jesus, wherever he goes, crowds just throng after him. 
even when he seems to be trying to get away from the crowds, which he does seem to do in, in these opening uh, first half of, of the book. He, you know, the old, what's the old Southwest commercial, you know, want to get away, you know. Well, every time he tries to get away, they follow him. And it's, it's as if, you know, before even the Internet, can you imagine if the Internet was around in his, in his time, in his earthly ministry? Without the Internet, without telephones, uh, you, you can't hide. He can't hide. No matter where he goes, the crowds come following after him. And a lot of times, as you can tell from feeding the 5,000, remember the feeding of the 5,000, that was just the men. Besides 5,000 men, there were women and children. Who knows, double, triple the number, maybe more, that he fed? Those were pretty large crowds that followed him in the middle of the wilderness. You know, we, we, we don't do things like that. You know, when I was, when I was younger, uh, which was a long time ago, um, I used to think, oh, this stuff just sort of happened. In, you know, in what's the phrase in Bible time, people just did that kind of thing. No, they didn't. This wasn't a common thing. To have you know a rabbi walking around and, and going away from the cities and have you know fifteen thousand people possibly following him in the middle of nowhere, following him to the point where they they forgot to pack a lunch, they forgot to pack a bag, they just were so wanting to get near him, hear him, be healed by him, that they that they followed him. Well, everywhere he went, crowds followed literally, and he could not get any rest. We saw in previous verses where he went up on a mountain to pray just to get time alone with him and his father. And the more crowds that Jesus attracted, the more buzz that followed him, the more attention he got by the unbelieving religious leaders of his day as well, the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you remember back in chapter 3, way back then, chapter 3, verse 6, Mark points out that they had already been plotting to the word he uses is destroy him. They already wanted him dead. The previous chapter, uh, you might remember, they, they came and followed him, to, followed him to where he was, and they were disputing with him publicly about cleanliness, about his disciples not washing their hands in a, in a religious washing uh, before, before they ate. You know, they, they, everywhere they, that he goes, people follow and his enemies also follow. Remember, they publicly disputed with him over cleanliness, over washings, ceremonial washings, religious purification. And what did Jesus do then? He publicly rebuked them for placing their tradition over what? Over the commandments of God. Always trying to win friends and influence people, right? Jesus was. He always uh, spoke softly. No, he, he rebuked them publicly at times for it. Well, that, all of that kind of sets the stage for this event that we're looking at here in this short text in Mark chapter, chapter 7. What, what do you see Jesus doing? He's on the move again. He can't sit still. He can't stay in one place very long. Uh, so he moves, he moves again. Uh, we're going to see that, uh, Mark points it out explicitly, there's, he has no place to hide. No matter where he goes, he can't find a place to hide. We're also going to see in our text a mother's persistence in prayer for her little, little daughter. That's kind of the, the center of this, of this account, of this text. And then finally, we're going to see that the Lord Jesus Christ, as always, had grace to spare, even for this woman and her daughter. There's a parallel account of this, of this text in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. We're not going to spend most of our time there. We're going to spend... Uh, our time focusing on what on what Mark says about it. We'll look at Mark at Matthew 15 rather when when he gives details that might help fill out our understanding of what happens in our account here in 
in Mark. But we're going to stick with Mark for the most part because that's what Mark had in mind. He wrote what he wanted to write, not what Matthew wrote. Well, the first thing we're going to see in our text was that there was no place for Jesus to hide. No place suitable for Jesus to hide. In Mark uh, 7:24 to 30, we see Jesus heading north. Now, I'm not... I'm kind of geographically challenged. You know, some of you maybe you see a map once and you can kind of picture where everything is. Well, Tyre uh, is a place that if you know your Bible, Tyre and Sidon aren't exactly um, the places that you would go. Uh, you know, if you're an Israelite, uh, it wasn't a place you thought of fondly. It was a place north of Israel. It's one of the places where the enemies of God's people We're often uh, associated with with being from there. But you see Jesus going north to Tyre. It's even, you know, it's like he's going away from Jerusalem and now he goes even further. He's getting as far away as he could possibly think. It brings to my mind, I couldn't help but think of the time when, when David, King David, was on the run and he went to Philistia. You know, the one place they're not going to look for me. Well, Jesus kind of was, it seems like he's thinking the same way. Well, I, I know a place where they won't bother me. I'll go to Tyre and Sidon. You know, that, they're not going to go there. Well, somebody uh, went, went there, as we're going to see. Um, well, he's trying to get away for a while. You know, we don't know all the reasons. The, the scripture doesn't tell us all of that. Uh, he might be trying to let the frenzy of the crowds kind of die down a little bit. He might be trying to get away from, at least for a time, The, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and scribes, his, his enemies, those who were looking to stir up strife wherever he went. You know, at, at some point in the Gospels, Jesus, you know, he says things like his hour had not come yet. He's not ducking the cross, but it wasn't time yet. And so he's getting away for a time from, from their persecution. In verse 24, it says, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house. And did not want anyone to know. He, he's trying to get away. He's trying to, be, to have some time to himself. He doesn't want anybody to know. But what does Mark say? Yet he could not be hidden. If only that were the way things uh, were in, in our day. That the, the news of Jesus would be so much broadcasted and told. That it could not, could not be hidden. It seems as if. The exact opposite is the case in some ways, and that's most of us. Most of that is our doing, you know, my doing, your doing, not wanting to uh, suffer persecution for the message of the gospel. But that last phrase that he says there gives us a clue why Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon in the first place. It says he could not be hidden. That implies he wants, he's trying to be hidden a little bit. He's trying to get away. And again, that's a recurring theme in Mark's gospel, that wherever Jesus goes, news travels fast. He can't seem to get away or hide. Uh, again, everywhere Jesus went, somehow large crowds ended up following him. Well, there, the very next verse, verse 25 in our text, Mark uses that word that he uses so often throughout his gospel. He says, immediately. So Jesus is trying to be hidden, but he couldn't be hidden. He doesn't want anybody to know, but somehow word gets out. And immediately, verse 25 says, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. What happened? She heard of him. That's all it took. She heard Jesus was there. We don't know exactly what she knew about him. We know from this account in Matthew's gospel as well that she knew something about who he was. In Matthew's gospel, she calls him the son of David. Lord, son of David. Uh, but somehow she, she heard about Jesus. Word traveled fast, even in a place, a pagan Gentile place 
like Tyre and Sidon. The woman heard about Jesus Christ, and what does she do? She comes right away. She wastes no time. She hears he's there, and she comes running, and she falls at his feet. Why would she do that? She believed somehow that Jesus could and would help her daughter. Now, Mark, Mark in our text goes very much, you know, Mark's always uh, kind of the Reader's Digest version in, in, most, in most ways. He's always trying to giving us the bare minimum of detail. He's in a hurry to move the story along. But in this, in this particular passage, he goes out of his way to make sure we know just who it is who's coming to Jesus' feet. You might even notice that he doesn't mention Jesus by name in the chapter. It's almost like he's, he's crafting his account based on Jesus' desire to be hidden, and he's just saying he and him. He's not saying Jesus. We know who he's talking about. But what does he say about the woman? He says a lot about the woman. The first thing he does uh, tell us there, he tells us twice, is that she was a woman. He says it twice in verses 25 and 26. That may seem like a, a, an insignificant small detail to us, but in her day it was pretty significant. In fact, in our world today, there are many places where that is still a very significant uh, thing, not a good thing in some ways uh, for her. The significance of it was that in society in her day, she didn't have any significance. She was kind of a second-class, second-rate citizen in a lot of ways. And on top of that, what kind of woman was she? He says she was a, verse 26, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Matthew says she was a Canaanite. Same, six and one and half a dozen of the other. She, she wasn't a Jew. She was a Gentile. She was a non-Jewish woman. And here she comes to the Messiah, the son of David, as she even calls him in Matthew's account. The, the king of the Jews himself. You know, if you were her, she could have been saying, why would he come here? You, you, you could give her a break if she thought, you know, she heard the news, hey, that, that Jesus you keep hearing about is here. You know, if it was me, why would he come here? She doesn't. She comes right, as soon as she hears it, she comes right away and falls at his feet, even though he's the king of the Jews. He's not the king of Tyre and Sidon. He's not the king of the Syrophoenicians. He's not the king of the Gentiles uh, in, in, a, in an earthly sense. And she falls on her knees before him as, as if before a king, which he certainly was and still is. And what does she do? She begs him. She begs him to cast this demon out of her daughter. She begs him. The, the woman, now the woman knew, she knew she had no rightful claim on Christ at all. She wasn't even a Jew. And she was a woman on top of it. And she had a demon-possessed daughter. We could spend time on that, but this morning I won't. I mean, think about that. If there was ever a picture of someone unclean, she was it. Religiously unclean. And who does she, you know, she doesn't just go to some Jew, she goes to the king of them. And throws herself at his feet. You can, you can, you know, you can imagine she might have expected him to say, "Whoa, you know, somebody, you know, get this woman away. This isn't, this isn't what I, what I came here for." She knew she had no claim on him. She knew that this was, in some sense, at least, an unwelcome imposition. It wasn't like they hung a sign on the front door of the house saying, "You know, open for business" or "Inquire within." You know, help needed. Inquire within. You know. Psychiatric help, five cents, whatever, whatever the, um, you know, in fact, in Matthew's account, Matthew's account, ironically, is a little bit, a little bit longer there. And he said, it says this in Matthew uh, 15, 23, it says, and his disciples came and begged him. She wasn't the only one begging. 
His disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. You know, we came here to get a break. This woman won't leave us alone. It sounds like she started with the disciples and then somehow got, got past his, uh, his crew and got to Jesus him, himself. So she was begging and then they begged. And what did she beg? Cast this demon out of my daughter. What did they beg? Cast her out of here. This woman, I mean, who, who invited this Gentile woman? You know, we, we came here to get, to get away. And yet all that, and she wouldn't be deterred. She just kept on begging. And that brings us to our second point, maybe the central point in some ways of the text. And that's a mother's prayer. You know, this, this woman's biggest problem was not her gender. Her biggest problem wasn't her nationality or the fact that she was a Gentile. And so in, in some ways, she was unclean. Her biggest problem was that her little daughter had an unclean spirit. She was demon-possessed, verse 25. So what did she do? She fell at his feet, and she begged him to cast this demon out of her daughter. Now, the word for begged there is in what's called, in, in the Greek language, the imperfect tense. Now, it's, hard, it's hard to translate these things and, and carry all the nuances into English. But the imperfect tense in this particular uh, situation kind of suggests an ongoing action. She didn't just show up, drop herself at Jesus' feet and say, please cast the demon out of my daughter. She was begging and begging and begging. You know, the, 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 the account from Matthew's gospel of the disciples you know, gives you the idea. This, she was a persistent presence in, 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 their, in their case. She was coming to them and coming to Jesus and just pleading and begging and pleading and begging. Matthew 15, 22, he, he says this, that she came to Jesus crying out. This wasn't a calm, rational, reasoned, polite. Uh, it was begging. It was pleading. She was crying out, and this is what she cried out. And again, it's also imperfect. She was crying out. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So this was, we don't know how long this went on. Matthew, Matthew notes that he didn't answer her a word. You imagine this, what this must have looked like. She's begging, carrying on, crying out, falling at his feet, disturbing the disciples to the point where they're begging him, please get this woman out of here. You know, she's making a fuss, she's making a, a ruckus, and he doesn't even answer. And then Matthew notes that's when she fell at his feet and begged for help. So imagine how long this must have been going on for the disciples to react the way they did. What was Jesus' response? Now, his words might strike you and I in our day as a little bit cold, to say the least. Maybe even offensive. Maybe if you've never read this before, or maybe if you had, you read it and thought, whoa, you know, this, this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild kind of answer that I would have expected. I would have expected some very gentle, very uh, polite. What does he say? He says, uh, you know, let the, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Not exactly a resounding yes, was it? You know, now, if Jesus was, a, was here in our day, if his earthly ministry was right now in our context and culture, you can imagine uh, the outrage all over the Internet, right, all over social media, of, of Jesus' statement. You can imagine the kinds of things he would have been accused of. He certainly would have been accused of being a racist, a misogynist, all kinds of things. What was he doing? He was comparing his people, 
his own people to children. And he was comparing her people, anybody that wasn't his people, to what? Dogs. That wasn't a compliment. That wasn't a, you know, I love my kids, but I'm really a dog person. You know, I I really love dogs. You know, I'll feed my kids sometime here. He's saying, I'm taking care of my kids, and you don't take the bread, the food for your children, and and chuck it to the dogs. Who does that? Maybe some people do that, but, but it wouldn't be the right thing to do. Now, was Jesus really insulting her? Honestly, was Jesus insulting this woman? How did she take it? That might give you a a clue about what he was saying. Was he really being that unkind or insensitive towards her feelings? Was he being calloused and uncaring towards her suffering? Was he being calloused towards her suffering? Is, Is that really in character for the Jesus we know in Scripture? To paint his words in that kind of a way. No, I don't, I don't think it is. When you read the Gospel of Mark, the other three Gospels, you don't come away with a picture of Jesus being callous towards people's suffering. Certainly not. He came to suffer for sinners in our place. Well, the very fact that she wasn't put off by his words in any way, shape, or form, seemingly, that in a strange way, she was kind of encouraged by his words to press on, wasn't she? It's not, what you, it's not what you would have expected. It's not what I expected when I was reading it. But he gives a hint here, Mark does, I think, of, of the way Jesus said what he said. It's hard to see tone in, in the written page, and we don't really know. It doesn't say Jesus smiled or Jesus winked or anything like that. But how did she take his words? Did she take his words as an insult? It doesn't seem that way. Did she take his words as slamming the door? Were the disciples in the background kind of cheering like, yes, get her out of here. Thank you. He finally did what we said. You know, he finally listens to us, the experts. No, she, she took it as not shutting the door, but leaving it open a crack. Kind of leaving the door to her request open just a little bit, just enough for her to get her foot in the proverbial door. Verse 28, this is what she says. Uh, Mark writes, But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So she wasn't put off by her and her daughter who was suffering being compared to dogs. Now, the word for dog here is kind of the word, just like the description in the text makes clear. They're not talking about street dogs. They're not talking about mongrels. They're not talking about the kind of dog that when you're out for a walk and you see one loose, you think, oh, why didn't I bring a stick? You know, why didn't I bring a golf club? It, it, it's a house pet. It's a diminutive. It's a, it's a little dog, the kind of dog that you would keep uh, in, in, your, in your house. That's the kind of dogs, quote unquote, that Jesus is talking about here. Family pets. But what, when she hears that word for dogs, what does she think? She knows she's not a Jew. You know, Mark, the words of Mark in describing her as this Gentile Syrophoenician by birth, you know, those wouldn't have been a newsflash to her. She knew where she stood in relation to Israel, and it wasn't in a good place. But when Jesus spoke of her and her daughter as little dogs or family pets, what she heard evidently was, she's talking about, he talked about somebody who's at least in the house. I'm not the dog, the mongrel dog out in the street. I'm the family pet. I at least have a reason to be in the house. I have a reason to expect, even if it's table scraps, to be, to be fed. After all, who, who among you has pets? Most, most of you do have some kind of pet 
dog, bird, cat, whatever, maybe multiple different kinds. And how many of you don't feed them? Now, if you're like us, you constantly shoo them off the counter. You get mad if they jump on the table when your kids are trying to eat. You might spray them with a water bottle. You might do something else. Um, but you don't throw them out. You might be tempted to throw them out. But you, you feed them, right? And you might even feed them with table scraps. I've been told you shouldn't do that, but uh, some, some do that. So what's the woman doing? What's this mom doing? She's arguing with Jesus in prayer. She won't take no for an answer. She pleaded her case. And how did she plead her case? She didn't appeal to any, you know, she, she wasn't kidding herself. She didn't appeal to some kind of supposed worthiness in herself. She didn't try to say that her case was so worthy or that she was really a good person so Jesus should listen to her and answer her request. What she really did was just the opposite. She wasn't insulted by being called the family pet or the family, family dog. She acknowledged her utter worthy, worthlessness, unworthiness before the Lord. She pleaded based on not her character, but the character of Jesus himself. And isn't that really the way to do it? She knew somehow, we don't know how, but she knew somehow that Jesus was merciful and kind and good. And so she kept on persevering in her request. Now, what a wonderful encouragement I hope that is to you as it is to me, for sinners to seek mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful encouragement it is for you and I as believers to persevere in prayer. Sometimes God seems to be saying no. Sometimes God does say no. But sometimes God seems to be saying no. He seems to be kind of inattentive to our prayers. Have you ever had that happen? You ever kind of muttered to yourself at some point? You haven't because you're more sanctified than I am. But I've been praying this same thing for 10 years, for 20 years, praying for a loved one, praying for some situation. And it seems as if the heavens are kind of made of you know, brass, they say. You know, God is not paying attention. Where if he is, he's not seemingly in an answering mood. Well, sometimes God does that not to deny his children any good thing that you and I might need, but to teach us to persevere in prayer. Sometimes even to teach us how to pray, that we might learn to plead his own promises and his own perfections back to him in prayer. That's what the woman is doing, for sure. So whether we're praying for lost loved ones, maybe we're praying for children, others who have wandered from the faith, or for some other thing that we might desperately feel our need of, let us take heart to persevere in prayer. Let us plead the promises of God back to him. Let us plead his own perfections back to him. It brings to mind Moses back in Exodus 32. You might be familiar with that passage. What's the context? The children of Israel have just made a golden calf and bowed down to it and worshipped it. And, and they've, it's ironic, and I think it's intentionally ironic, but in that chapter, three different times, it's almost word for word from the, sec, from the fourth commandment. Or excuse me, the second commandment. Uh-oh, pastor doesn't know his commandments. The one, the one against idolatry. Uh, well, you know, he says, you know, the Lord, why aren't they committed to commit idolatry? Well, the Lord, uh, he's the one that made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. It says in Exodus 20. Well, in Exodus 20, verse 2, what does it say? He says, I am the Lord your God who what? Brought you out of the land of Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery. Well, what did they say the golden calf did? This is, behold your God who did what? Who brought you out of Egypt. It's, it's, the, the irony is so thick, you can cut it with a knife. The, when, they, when they were saying it, the, the words should have been ringing in their ears. Whoop, this reminds me of something. You know, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. So what is God's response to this idolatry? What does God equate idolatry to in the Ten Commandments? Those who hate me. It's hatred of God. It's putting something in God's place. Something you made with your own hands in God's place. That's, that's what, he, what he says there. So God threatened to Moses. He said, you know, Moses, I'm paraphrasing, but I'll use one word he used. I'm going to consume them. God is a consuming fire. I'm going to consume them, and I'm going to start over with you. I can still make this a great nation, but forget them. Um, you can be my new Abraham. You're still in the line of Abraham, so it still counts. You know, God didn't break his promises. Uh, but he says, I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And what does Moses do? If I was Moses, I'd have been like, good idea. They're, they're really been on my back this whole time. I'm getting tired of them griping at me as if I'm God. No, Moses pleads on their behalf that God would relent and not, not consume them, not send the disaster he had threatened to do. And how did Moses pray in, in, in Exodus chapter 32? Two things, at least. He pleaded with the Lord based on God's glory and God's perfections. Not on the character of the people. That wasn't going to work, was it? Not on his own character. That wasn't going to work either. He didn't say, God, spare them because, you know, you love me and I'm a good guy. No, he says, you know, this is what he says in, in uh, Exodus 32, verse 12. He says that God should show mercy. He pleads with God to show mercy. Why? Lest the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Why should they say that? He's saying, don't let the enemies of your people, your enemies, don't give them the satisfaction of gloating and saying, see, he really doesn't care for these people. And it says, he finally says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. So he pleads God's own glory. This, this will not glorify you. This will, look, this will make you look bad before these pagan nations, especially Egypt the one that you rescued them from in the first place. They'll get the last laugh. Do we pray on the basis of God's glory when we pray? We should. We pray for this church to grow. We do. But why? Do we pray that, that God will be glorified in the making of disciples? Do we pray that Jesus' enemies will be made a footstool for his feet here in Ramona for his glory? What's the second way that Moses prayed in Exodus chapter 32, he pleaded with God, with the Lord, on the basis of his own promises and covenant. That's a good place to start. It's basically saying, God, do this because you said this. He says, verse 13, the very next verse, Exodus 32, 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, your servants, and what does he say? To whom you swore by your own self. You made an oath by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He's basically saying, you can't do that because you promised. 
You made a covenant with these with, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel. And these people are involved in some way in that covenant. He pleaded God's own promise back to him. He pleaded God's own covenant, the oath he swore back to him. Is it any wonder that God relented from sending that disaster upon his own people, that he relented from consuming them? Now, is there any question that his intention all along was to show mercy? Did God actually change his mind? I would say no. Did, did he not even lead Moses to pray the way he did? And yet he does teach us there to intercede, just as he taught Moses to intercede as their mediator. I think we're to take that example and learn to plead God's perfections and his promises back to him in prayer. Well, that brings us to maybe the most important thing we see here in our text, and that's the Lord Jesus has grace to spare. Think about the miracle that happened not long before this, the feeding of the 5,000. You know, a small boy's lunch, some bread and some fish, and he feeds, who knows, 10, 15,000 people total with this one lunch. It's a miracle that wasn't just an act of miraculous sharing, as some like to say. Um, and then to make sure we know what happened, what does it say was left over? Twelve baskets full of the leftovers were taken, were taken up, one for each apostle to stare at with their mouth gaped open, right? Like, wait, what just happened? You know, 12 baskets full were left over. There was more than enough. In fact, the text says each one had their fill. It wasn't like everybody had a crumb, like the woman says in this text. They were full. They had enough fish. They had enough bread to fill them to be satisfied. And over and above that, there were 12 baskets left over. Well, just like that, that there was, there was plenty to go around. Well, here Jesus has grace to spare as well. There's not just leftover crumbs for this woman and for her, her daughter. Verses 29 to 30, Mark says, And he, Jesus, he said to her, For this statement, or this word, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, it wasn't because she was clever, it wasn't because she, she used just the right words or the right formula to get her way. That's not how God works. That's not how Jesus Christ answers prayer. What was it about her words that, that led Jesus to do what he did? What did her words reveal about her? They revealed faith. They were an evidence of her faith in Jesus. You can't plead with the Lord on the basis of his character and his perfections without believing in and trusting in him and his perfections. She trusted that he was merciful. That's why she kept persisting in prayer. Matthew's account makes this clear. Matthew fifteen twenty eight. it says there, uh, but the Lord Jesus said to the woman, O woman, great is your faith. He makes explicit what's implied in Mark's account. Great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. So it was this, this Gentile woman, this pagan woman's faith, no doubt every bit the gift of God, put there by God himself, that believed in the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And so she received that mercy and grace for her daughter. Her prayers for her daughter did not go unheard or unanswered. J.C. Ryle offers the following words of encouragement from this account. He says, Never, never let us forget that the children for whom many prayers have been offered seldom finally perish. 
You know, we, we've all, we all have loved ones that we've been praying for for years. Some of you have children you've prayed for for years and years and years. Uh, and you, you just keep praying for them because you're a parent. It's what parents do. Right? You think you know how to, what's the old saying? You think you know, but you have no idea. Um, I'm learning this. Some of you have already known this for decades. But, you know, you think you know how to pray until you have kids. Right? Then you learn how to pray. Most of my prayers before we had kids were selfish. Some of them still are. But once you have kids, all bets are off. You know, you're, all your priorities change, and you know better than, than I do most of you uh, how that affects your, your prayers. You know, God, you have to believe at some point, God put them in your family for a reason. And he put them in a praying family for a reason. Now think about this Gentile woman's faith and think about the contrast that, that puts between her, the most unlikely of people to receive mercy from Christ, and those Pharisees and scribes who we just looked about in the previous passage. Their hardened unbelief even though they had all kinds of opportunity to hear Jesus, all they did was nitpick and confront and criticize. What a rebuke to the self-righteous, not just of his age, but of any age. Those who refuse to come to Christ because they're stuck in their own self-righteousness. What an encouragement to us, to needy sinners who come to the Lord for mercy and grace and to find salvation from sin. Now think about this. Was Jesus' detour north to Tyre an accident? No. Nothing's an accident, right? Is there any doubt that Jesus took this detour north into Gentile territory, at least in part, in order to show mercy and grace to this woman and to her daughter? Is there any doubt whatsoever that Jesus was seeking and saving the lost, even when he was, quote-unquote, trying to get away? You know, if you're her, you might have thought to yourself, well, why would he come here? Of all the places he could go, why would he come here? Well, I think the end of the passage tells us the main reason why he really came in the first place. And again, this brings to my mind, and I hope it does to yours, when you read the Gospels, when you read Mark or Matthew, Luke or John, do you ever once see Jesus really ever turning any sinner away who comes to him by faith for mercy and grace and help in time of need? Do you ever once see it? Not once. You see people turn themselves away. You see the Pharisees and scribes hardened in their hearts because of sin, attacking him, criticizing him, mocking him even, plotting his death. You see a rich young ruler departing from him because he had many possessions. And he loved those possessions more than he loved eternal life and loved the Lord. But you never see Jesus turn a single solitary soul away who comes to him for help. And that's still true today. That's the message. I think that one of the messages Mark and the other gospel writers want to impress upon you and upon me. Whoever comes to him by faith, he will never cast out. Jesus himself says as much in John 6.37. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, always has enough grace to go around. Jesus always has grace enough to spare. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, what this, this short account uh, in Mark's gospel uh, emphasizes and reminds us of, that, that your son, that you in Christ always have mercy to spare, that you, you cast no one away who comes to you by faith and leans upon and rests upon in your promises in Jesus Christ, that if we, if we turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone for our salvation, that you 
have abundant mercy and forgiveness and you accept us in Christ and you save us from our sin, from its penalty, from its power. And one day that we look forward to, even from its very presence, we thank you for this. We thank you for the great mercy that is to be had, the great grace that is to be had in Christ alone. Uh, we do pray that if anybody here does not yet know you, if they have, for whatever reason, kept themselves back from coming to you and falling at your feet and asking for help and mercy for their sin, that you would lead them to do even that just this morning, that you would uh, seek and save the lost here among us, here in town. We ask that you would make us, uh, give us grace to be your witnesses here, that, that sinners who are stuck in their sin and misery might hear of Christ and come and fall at his feet in faith and repentance and receive mercy and grace to spare. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.